All right. Can you hear me now? All right. If you have your Bibles, and I pray that you do, let's go to um, Psalm chapter 57 this morning. Psalm chapter 57. Trade stands with Leanne here. Hers a little bit wider. And when you get there, as always, just stand to give reverence in the living and powerful Word of God. All right. Psalm 57, at the top it says, Let your glory be over all the earth. It's to the choir master. According to do not destroy a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. He says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and He will save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. But my soul is in the midst of lions and I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let Your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to You, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to You among the nations because Your steadfast love is great to the heavens, Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be over all the earth. You can be seated. <clears throat> And as you're seated, I'd like to ask if uh, Mr. Ronnie Lee would lead us in a word of prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you today, thanking you for another breath of life, Lord, another another day we get to come to your house, Lord, and Lord. Amen. This morning, in the psalm that we are in, we have some wonderful context that it gives us here. You don't always get this with the psalms. But in this psalm, it actually gives us some context so that we can really put ourselves in the shoes of David for a moment and understand a little bit about what he's feeling and understand a little bit about why he says what he says. And so today I want you to notice that there are 
two parts to this psalm. They can be separated like this. Verses 1 through 5, basically I labeled it, and there's several things you could label it, but I labeled it the, the prayer of the faithful. So the prayer of the faithful is verses 1 through 5. And you notice it ends in verse 5 with a praise. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And then verses 6 through 11 is the second part of the psalm. And this is simply the praise of the faithful. The praise of the faithful. And so we go from prayer into just absolute praise. And that's the two main parts of this. But I also want you to notice the theme behind the prayer and the praise. The theme you'll see is in verse 1 where he says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. And so the theme of this is that David is in the midst of storms of destruction. Not a storm, storms of destruction. But in the storms of destruction... While all this rage is going on around him, he has made a decision. I am going to take my refuge. I'm going to find my safety. I'm going to find my shelter. I'm going to find my security in God under the shadow of His wings. Now in verse 7, we find out how David actually does this. Because it's easy for me to say, you think about it. If you're going through a storm right now and you think of to yourself... Um, I'm going to take refuge in God. Okay, that sounds good. How are you going to do that? How do you take refuge in the Lord? What is it that you actually do in your life that says, I am going to take refuge in God. I'm going to get under the shelter of His wings. And verse 7 tells us what what he does. In verse 7 he says... My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Some versions translate this, My heart is fixed or my heart is anchored. Some versions translate it, My heart is prepared. My heart is ready. Do you see the point behind it? David is declaring here, God, I have prepared my heart to take refuge in you. And then he says how he does it, and you see that. He praises. That's going to be one of them, of course. But the point being is that David, and you're going to see as we walk through this psalm verse by verse, that what David does is that he has found out how to fix his heart. How to... You have a responsibility to fix your heart. Now, don't get me wrong. God has to give you a new heart, right? He does. And God is sovereign over that. But you do still have a responsibility to fix your heart. You have a responsibility to prepare your heart. You have a responsibility to follow Him in faith. It's something that you do have to do. Many times we preach and we preach the sovereignty of God so mighty, and it is, 
But many times we preach it that way and it takes our responsibility completely out of it. And we feel like all we have to do is just sit back and let God do what He does and we don't have to do anything. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you have a responsibility to fix your heart, to prepare your heart. We do that by listening to Him, learning from Him, following Him, trusting Him, and all that. But what I'm going to show you through this psalm, this is the title of my message this morning, Fix Your Heart to Take Refuge in God. Fix Your Heart to Take Refuge in God. God. So how did David do this? Well, he showed us several ways that he actually did this, but one of the first things I want to talk to you about before I go any further is the context of this psalm. Now, you will remember that at the top we read that it's a psalm of David. It's a mictum is what it says. In simplest terms, the the meaning of that is a little bit unclear, but most scholars agree that this is a term that means um, stamped like gold. In other words, it was um, it was one of the top psalms. Uh, a mictum to us today may be amazing grace. Uh, a mictum to us today may be it is well with my soul. It's some kind of a song that has just stood the test of time. And it has become one of the top songs that we have. And so that's what they believe a mictum stood for. Another thing it says here is that it, it happened when he fled from Saul in the cave. And we have those events in 1 Samuel chapter 22 through 24. I'm not going to go back and read them, but I'll give you a few highlights of it. Basically, David is running for his life. And he is running from many enemies. He has spent his entire adult life fighting for King Saul and for the nation of Israel. And he has conquered and been successful over all of their enemies. Now I want you to think about that. You remember the psalm, for those of you that have some Bible knowledge, you remember that when they came back into the town, they were singing praises to both Saul and David, but there was a difference in the praise. They said, Saul has slain his thousands, and yet David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul begins to get this jealous spirit. And God has already decided because of Saul's sin that he's going to take the kingdom from him and give it to David. So David has spent his whole life fighting for this man and this kingdom. And now all of a sudden, Saul wants to kill him and he's running for his life. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5, the Bible actually tells us, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's. So he has spent his life being successful over all enemies. So his only people he's got are Saul and Israel, right? He's conquered everybody else. Everybody else is now his enemy. And he is the man, not Saul. But now Saul the king has turned on him and Israel has turned on him. So how many enemies does David have in this context right now? Everybody. 
Everybody is, is His enemy. He tells us that He is facing many storms of destruction in verse 1. And we can understand that. There are many that have turned on Him and they're trying to kill Him. And if you go back and you read 1 Samuel chapter 22 through 24, you will see some of those people. The Philistines were trying to kill Him. Uh, Saul was trying to kill Him. The army of Saul was trying to kill Him. Everywhere He went, Someone was seeking his life. He had no place to go for shelter and security. He had no place to go for refuge. In verse um, 4, it tells us that these are the children of man, not just a child of man, but the children of men, plural, are against him. And they are like, in this verse, fiery beasts and lions. He describes them as that way. In verse 3, he says they are trying to trample him. Not trying to. They are trampling on him as if he, he is um, wanting us to see. It's like a stampede of people that's just going over him here. And then in verse 4 again, he says that they're using their tongues like sharp swords to try to destroy him. We see that when we go back and read this, that there were many of, of Israel that were trying to tell Saul that David is trying to kill you. David, David wants to take your throne. Well, David didn't want to take his throne. God had already done it. And so they're telling Saul, David is just going to take over. He's going to come in. He's going to kill you. He wants to mean to do you harm. And their tongues are like sharp swords trying to destroy him in this. And now you remember uh, a few weeks ago, this may have been a Wednesday night study. I don't remember when I did this. But Saul had had all the priests of God killed who tried to help David. Y'all remember that? Every one of the priests were killed except for one that escaped to go and tell David what was happening. Then he wrote a psalm about that. I believe it was on Sunday morning when, when we preached that. But the point is this. Everywhere that David tries to turn, men are trying to take his life. He has no safety anywhere he goes. But in verse 1, notice what he says. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul takes its refuge in the shadow of your wings. In the shadow of your wings is where I'm going to find the safety and the security that I need. <coughs> Excuse me. So the first thing that we see that David does to fix his heart, if you're taking notes, he fixes his heart to think rightly about himself. He fixes his heart to think rightly about himself. Notice the first thing that David says in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is when someone holds back what you deserve. David understands in his current situation that as a sinner in this world, he deserves every bit of this. God created him for a purpose and a reason, just like you and I. And yet, we live about our days living for our own purpose and our own glory. We have looked at the Creator of all the universe and said, God, we don't need you, we don't want you, we don't want your ways. We can decide for ourselves what we do with our lives. Our life belongs to us. And how many of you know that that is not true? That is not the truth. And so David first off recognizes that everything that comes his way is exactly what he deserves. 
And so his cry to God is simply, God, I know who I am. I know that you don't owe me anything. You owe me your wrath. That's what you owe me. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, look at what Paul said about who we are. He said, as it is written, none are righteous. No, not one. There's not a single person, not even David. There's not a single human being outside of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ Himself, that is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. You do not seek God on your own. Until God opens your eyes to your sin and until God draws you to Him, you don't seek God. It's not something that you do. You come out of this womb saying, give me what I want. This life is about me now. And when someone tells you no, what does that make you want to do? You want to do. You always want what you can't have. Have anybody ever noticed that about your life? You always want what you can't have. And then when you have it, a lot of times, you don't want it anymore. You are never satisfied in life. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Go to verse 12. And have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is who we are. Now we don't like to see ourselves that way, do we? We want to see ourselves as, God, I'm all about you. God, there's nothing more important in my life than you. How many of you know that's a lie? That's a lie. This is who we are. David understands that and he thinks rightly about himself. He understands that God does not owe us anything. Psalm chapter 100 verse 3 says this, It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 8 says this, We are the Father's clay and He is the potter. We are the work of His hand. And yet we rebel against Him. He doesn't owe us anything. Do you understand that this morning? reason I need you to understand that is because how many of you get mad at God? Come on, how many of us get mad at God if He don't do something we expect Him to do? We honestly think in our heart that God actually owes us something. God does not owe us anything. You know who owes something? We do. We owe God everything. We are His clay. He is the potter. And He can do with my life whatever He chooses to do. And it is never wrong. No matter how it looks to the world, it is never wrong. He does not owe us anything. But He has demonstrated His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, 
He died for us. He sent His Son for us. And so we need to have that right thinking of ourselves. Can we ask God for something? Can we ask God to do something? Yes, you can. Does He owe you anything? No, He doesn't. He doesn't owe you anything. And we have to think rightly about ourselves. God, if we come to You for anything, the only thing we can come to You for is mercy. God, don't give us what we deserve. God, give us what we don't deserve. Give us Your grace. Give us Your love. Give us Your kindness and Your compassion. And so we have to fix our heart to ring, think rightly about Him. We don't come to God like He owes us anything. That's the first thing. The next thing comes through verses 2 through 3. We have to fix our heart to pray rightly to God. We have to fix our hearts <clears throat> to pray rightly to God. Notice in verse 2 what He says. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He fulfills whose purpose? His purpose for me. We trust God's purpose for us. In the prayer here, David plainly lays out, God, I trust Your purpose for me in this world. Do I know what it is? Not completely. Do I know what all it entails? No, I sure don't. But God, I trust Your purpose for me in this world. And notice what he says about God. I cry out to God most high. In other words, He is supreme. He is sovereign over us as the song sings. God, I trust that You are supreme, You are sovereign and you have a purpose for my life, no matter what it is. Just like you had a purpose for Pharaoh's life. Wasn't a good purpose, but he had a purpose. You had a purpose for Moses' life, and it involved a whole lot of trials and suffering, but it was still your purpose for his life. Same for Joseph, same for David, same for Elijah, same for Elisha. There are so many different people that God has displayed His sovereignty and His supreme power in their lives, even though they went through many, many difficult things. And so I want you to remember this morning the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember when the disciples heard Jesus praying? Now they had heard many prayers. They grew up Jewish people. They'd been in the synagogues. They had heard people pray. But when Jesus prayed, there was something different. You remember that? And they came outside and they heard Jesus praying and they stopped and they said, Wow, Lord... Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like this. And Jesus said, okay, here's how you pray. First off, you pray to our Father, our Father, which art in heaven. What comes next? Hallowed be thy name. The first thing that Jesus taught them is that the first thing we pray for is whatever honors God's name. God, first and foremost, hallowed be your name. I trust your purposes. I trust your plan. God, hallowed be your name. Whatever honors your name, let's, let's do that. That's how I'm going to structure my prayer. That's how I'm going to pray rightly. I'm not coming to you saying, God, okay, hallowed be my name. Hallowed be my life. Hallowed be uh, my family. No, God, hallowed be your name. You are high. You are holy. You are set apart. I know who I am. And I know what I deserve. 
And so God, whatever honors your name. So hallowed be thy name. And then what comes next? Thy kingdom come. So the next part of our prayer where we pray rightly is simply, God, not only whatever honors your name, but whatever advances your kingdom in my life. I don't care what it is. If it means my suffering, if it means my death, God, whatever advances your kingdom, God, you do that. You do that. And then thy kingdom come and what's next? So God, whatever honors your name, God, whatever advances your kingdom, and God, whatever is according to your purposes and your will in this world, you do that. That's how we fix our heart to pray rightly. We understand who we are. We understand what we deserve. And we understand His love for us. And we cry out to Him who is Most High. But we trust the God Most High who fulfills His purposes for me. Because He promises this. Even though my purpose for you may include suffering, hard suffering, I promise I will always take what the enemy means for evil and I will always turn it for your good and for my glory. I promise you I will do that. And this is the same thing that 1 John chapter 5 verse 14 teaches, which is there's no better than there's no better example than Jesus, but just for sake of scripture John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything what According to His will, He hears us. And now go with me to James chapter 4, verse. Um, uh, let's look at verse 3. You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask what? Remember, David understood, I've got to fix my heart to pray rightly to God. How do I do that? I trust His purposes for me. I trust that God do whatever honors your name. God, what I want, even if it hurts me, God, I want whatever advances your kingdom. God, I want whatever is according to your purposes and your will. God, you do that. That's what I want. But some people ask and they do not receive because they ask wrongly to spend it on their own passions. Look at James chapter 4, verse 13. I think it is verse 13 through 16. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow may bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say this, if the Lord wills, we will live. And we will do this or we will do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Fix your heart to pray rightly about God. Now, listen, I know that there are some people who will say to me this morning, well, what about those verses that say whatever we ask? Just speak to this mountain and if you have enough faith, it will be cast into the sea. Is that true, preacher? Yes, that's true but it does not supersede this. 
If God, according to His purposes, if it honors His name, if it advances His kingdom, and we pray in that mindset with faith that this mountain be removed and cast into the sea, guess what will happen? Mountains going in the sea. So we pray in absolute faith and absolute confidence in the power of God, but it does not supersede. Let me give you the best example. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember how Jesus prayed? Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But what? But not my will. Your will be done. Jesus, because He was God, understood and He teaches us this morning that the way we fix our heart to pray rightly, we understand, God, first and foremost, whatever honors Your name, we know who we are. God, whatever will advance Your kingdom, do that. God, whatever is according to Your purposes for my life, You do it. I am Yours. This body and this life belongs to You. And You do with it whatever You please. And that's how you pray rightly. You know, I heard a preacher say last week, I think it was, I was listening to him and um, he was preaching on another psalm. A lot of these are similar. I don't remember which one it was. But he made a statement that caught my attention. He said this, God doesn't always give you what you ask for. But God always gives you what you would have asked for if you could see what He sees. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew what He knows. Does that make sense? See, we're these, we're these little ants running around down here that have no idea of the big picture of what's going on, do we? We don't. We can't. It's not, we are not, um, we're finite creatures. We're not omniscient. We don't have all knowledge of all things. But God knows the beginning of a thing all the way to the end of a thing. And because of that, He is able to know exactly what needs to be done, when it needs to be done in order to honor His name, advance His kingdom, and work out all of His purposes in all of our lives for all of the good of those that love Him and are called according to His what? His purpose and for His glory. God doesn't always give you what you ask for, but He always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew what He knows. Does that make sense? Fix your heart to pray rightly to God. But notice in verse 3, we do pray in full assurance of God's power. I'm not telling you that all we ever do is just say, God, I don't know what you want, so you know what? Just do what you want to do. I'm not telling you to do that. And I'm going to give you an example of it here in a minute because it's going to sound like a contradiction. It's not. On the one hand, I'm telling you, you pray with enough faith to believe that mountain will be cast and removed into the sea. On the other hand, you pray, God, not my will, your will be done. So which is it, preacher? What do we do? Well, <clears throat> look at verse 3. Notice what he says next after proclaiming, God, I trust your purpose. In verse 3, he says, He will send from heaven and save me. 
He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Salah. God will send out His steadfast love and His faith. Y'all hear that faith? Y'all hear that trust? You hear that confidence? He may not do it the way that I want it. He may not do it the way that I plan on it. But He will. And I know He can. And I know He is able. And no matter what it looks like, and no matter what happens here, He's going to save me. That's just it. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know that He is going to do these things. Let me give you an example. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 14 through 18, y'all remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, they have decided that they are not going to bow to the king's statue. They are not going to bow and worship anyone except for their God. And it says here, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Verse 15. Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, uh, I'm not sure what that is, the bagpipe and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made, then well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God? Listen to Nebuchadnezzar's question. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar don't know who he is, does he? And he don't know who God is. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now you think about that. You want to know who's the God that's going to save us from your hand? Let me tell you something. We don't have a need to even answer that question. Why? If this be so, if it's going to be that your hands are going to take us and throw us into the fiery furnace, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of what? He will deliver us out of your hand. Now, does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that God is not going to let them burn up in this furnace? Do they know that? They don't know that. But they know one thing. They know God is able to deliver them from the great king's hands and the great fiery furnace. God is able. And they know that in one way or another, ultimately, He will deliver. I'm not concerned about your hands, O king. <laughs> We don't even need to answer you in this. But then go to verse 18. But if not, did you catch that? He will deliver. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you see the full assurance of faith and yet the God whatever honors your name do that? God, whatever advances your kingdom, if my life advances your kingdom, take it. If my life is according to your purpose, do it. There's so much I don't see and I don't understand, but one thing I know, I trust the God who fulfills His purpose for me in this life. So on the one hand, they claimed God's power over the darkness and the storm, but on the other hand, they trusted God's purpose for their life. So in one sense, you do name it and claim it. Is that not what they did? Is that not what um, what um, who was other David did here in the Psalms? 
On the one hand, we do name it and claim it. We know that God is able to do this. And we know that ultimately those that belong to Him, He will save. But if not, let it be known that we trust Him. We trust His purposes for our life. And this is the way that we fix our heart to pray rightly to God. God, do this. Have mercy on us. This is our cry. This is our prayer. But nevertheless, not our will. Your will be done. Why? Because we want whatever honors your name. We want whatever will advance your kingdom. We want whatever is according to your purposes for our lives in this world. Why do we want that? Because you have promised us something. What did He promise us? That no matter what, I will always turn it for your good. Always. And I will always cause it to be for my glory. And when we know that, remember what's our heart's desire anyway? God, do it all for your glory. Honor your name, advance your kingdom, have your way and your will in this world. That's what we want. And that's the heart of a Christian. So fix your heart to pray rightly about God. Verse 4. I got to speed up. Spending too much time on some of these. Verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Here's the next way you fix your heart to pray rightly about God or pray rightly to God. You just honestly cast your cares upon Him. I'm not telling you that just because David was so full of faith and so full of trust in the purposes of God that he didn't still pour out his heart to Him. He did. He said, God, first off, I trust you. No, he said, God, first off, I need mercy. God, second off, I trust your purposes for my life. God, third off, I know, I know that you'll save me. I know what you will do. And then next, God, in spite of all that, this is the way I feel right now. This is what's going on. This is where I'm at. You remember what God said in, in Peter? He said, cast your cares on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Alright, number three. Fix your heart to think rightly about God. Fix your heart to think rightly about God. Look at verse 6 and 7. Notice in verse 6, David says, They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Did y'all see that? Here's what David does with his heart. He remembers that God has been his Savior in the past. See, context here. Where's David at? In the cave. Running from King Saul, right? If you go back and you read the story, before he got to the cave, you know what had happened to him? The Philistines caught him. And they took him to Gath, where he was the one that killed. You remember David and Goliath? You remember where Goliath was from? Gath. Before he gets to the cave, they take him to the king of Gath and they say, is this not David who has slew thousands upon thousands of Philistines? And David has to act crazy, acts like a madman, lets his spit run down his beard. He claws at the gates and the king looks and he says, and you can read all this in 1 Samuel 21 through 24, I believe it is. But he sits there and he claws at the gate and the king looks at their soldiers and he says, did you really bring me a madman here? 
There ain't no way this is David. Look at him. He said, don't I have enough madmen in this kingdom for you to bring me another one? And they let David go free. They set a trap for him. But instead, those Philistines fell into their own trap. And then let me give you another story. And I ain't going to give you all of them. You go back and read it for yourself and you find them. But when David is in the cave, he's got 600 men that have come to him, to him that were disgruntled with Saul in the kingdom. So this is a big cave. He's in the back of the cave. Saul has heard that David is in this wilderness, in this land, but he don't know where he's at. He goes out with his army, and when he gets to this cave, old King Saul has to use the potty. And King Saul, you liked that, didn't you, buddy? King Saul, he goes into the cave that David is in to relieve himself. And as he is in there relieving himself, David and one of his soldiers comes up behind him and they cut part of his robe off. And the soldier says, let me kill him. Let me kill him. God has delivered him into your hands. Let me kill him. David said, no, we're not going to touch God's anointed. God has said that He's going to remove Saul from the kingdom and He's going to put me there. I'm not going to jump in the way of God. And so when Saul leaves, he has no idea that David has been that close to him. And Saul goes to the other hillside and David comes out of the cave and he says, O king, today the Lord delivered you into my hands. See the piece of the robe that I cut off while you were in here. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And ultimately what we see there is that Saul was trying to set a net, was trying to set a trap for David when he went out to this wilderness. And what happened? Saul fell into his own trap. And David is looking back and he's remembering. He's remembering that God has, look at verse 6, they set a net for my steps, my soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. And then he says, Salah. And you remember what that word means? Think about that. Think about that. Every trap that the devil has ever tried to set for any of God's children, did he ever catch a minute? He fell into it himself, didn't he? Remember, whenever Moses was born, tried to kill all the Hebrew children because he knew that this was a special child. He tries to wipe them out. He, all through Moses' life, the devil keeps setting traps, setting traps, and every time... The devil keeps falling into it himself. Go back and look at the life of Joseph. Go back and look at the life of David. Go back and look at the life of Jesus. The devil thought when he got him on the cross, he said, oh, I got you now. I've caught him in the net. You know what happened? He had no idea that he was actually the one falling into the net that was set for him the whole time. No matter what the devil ever tried to do for God's children, God always took that evil and He always turned it for the good. And I know we don't want to hear that in our deepest, darkest hurts. I, I get that. I do. But does it make it any less true? Not at all. This is the absolute truth of what God does. <clears throat> I'm not going to go through all that. Last thing, praise rightly. Number four, verses 7 through 11. Praise rightly. Fix your heart to praise rightly. <clears throat> Notice what he says in verse 7. 
My heart is fixed. My heart is steadfast. My heart is ready. My heart is prepared. My heart is anchored. I have made a decision that my heart is going to be set to think this way, to pray this way, to think about God this way. And then finally, I'm going to fix my heart to do something that I may not necessarily feel like doing in the midst of a storm. But notice what he says at the end of verse 7. Here's how I fixed my heart. I will what? I will sing. You think David really feels like singing right now? But he fixes his heart. It's what I'm going to do. I will sing. I will make melody. And then look what he has to say to himself. And we get this. I can feel this. I can understand this. He looks at himself and he says, David, get up. David, it's time to wake up. You've been, you've been laying here too long. Get up. Wake up. And notice what he says next. Wake up, O harp. Wake up, O lyre. I will awake the dawn. The King James Version says, I will wake up early to praise Him. In other words, I'm going to schedule my praise with God. I, some, some versions translate this, I'm going to wake up the dawn. And that's okay. I don't know what the correct way is here. Either way, it's true. Either way, if David says, I'm going to wake up the dawn, you know what he's saying? I'm going to praise Him so loud and so much that, that I wake up the world with it. Or if he's saying, I'm going to wake up early to praise Him, David is still saying the same thing. He's saying, I'm going to get up and I'm going to praise Him with everything I've got because that's what He deserves. And then notice what he says next in verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Notice what he does next. I'm not going to just praise you by myself. I'm going to praise you with the peoples. I'm going to praise you among all the peoples. And he makes a decision that I am going to praise this way. And then notice in verse 10, why? Why is he going to do this? Because one thing he knows is true. God's steadfast love is great to the heavens and His faithfulness to the clouds. Here's what he knows. He knows that the love of God for him and God's children does not end. It don't end. And he knows that his faithfulness to his faithfulness in his promises and in his word to God's children, he knows that it never ceases. God is forever loving and God is forever faithful. It does not cease. And then finally in verse 11, there is nothing and there is no one greater in the heavens or on the earth. And notice what he says in verse 11, Be exalted. In other words, you be lifted up over everything else. God, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. There's nothing in the heavens that you shouldn't be exalted over. And then not only that, let your glory be over all the earth. There's nothing on the earth that is greater than your glory. So you be exalted in the heavens. You be exalted in the earth. It don't matter what my circumstances are. It don't matter how many storms of destruction you have sent my way. None of that matters. God, I am yours. Not the other way around. And whatever honors 
your name in my life, you do that. God, whatever advances your kingdom with my life, you do that. God, whatever is according to your purposes for my life, you do that. Because I know that that's what I would pray for if I knew what you know. But I don't. So I'll pray for my heart's desires, but I'll trust your purposes, I will trust your will, and I will give you all the glory and exalt your name above the heavens and over all the earth, no matter what storm of destruction you send my way.